You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, my oldest son, Jack, is 19. And one of the things we like to do together is hunt. We hunt deer in deer season, and deer season only. And this year, we hunt hogs and varmints for the rest of the year. We've got a new lease that's about 30 minutes away from where we live, and so we've been out a bunch, anticipating him going off to college. I'm trying to get as many of those trips in as I can. But we quickly learned that hunting in the winter has different hazards than hunting in the summer. One night, it was about midnight, we're out hog hunting, and decided we'd go sit in one of our stands. And so we opened up the door to the stand, and uh, up in the corner, in front of one of the chairs, was a wasp's nest. Pretty good-sized nest, had about a dozen wasps sleeping. Now, I don't like wasps. I've been stung by them. I respect them. I know that that hurts, but I'm not wildly afraid of wasps. My son, in fact, most of my kids are what I would call wildly afraid of wasps. They'll run screaming at the very sound of a wasp. They'll use that spray that only shoots about 30 feet when you shoot it so they don't have to get close. And they prefer to drown the wasp when they spray it. So they use a whole bottle of wasp spray on one or two wasps. So as I shine the light up on this nest, I figure there's no way that I'm getting Jack into this stand. But I offered to take the seat that was right in front of the nest, which is normally where he would sit, and I was surprised that he actually followed me up into the stand. See, my plan was if we just sat still and quiet, the wasps wouldn't mess with us, which in hindsight wasn't a great plan, particularly if we decided to shoot something right under the wasp nest. Um, So, We get up in there, we get settled, and we've just gotten the guns out, we're ready to go, and then I notice a wasp crawls up from underneath my chair. It turns out I didn't see the wasp's nest that was underneath the chair. And I'm about 12 inches away from a dozen sleeping wasps, so I used to be in the army. I know if you want to kill something, you kill it quietly, you use a knife, right? So I pull out a knife, and I reach down, and I pinch that wasp and cut it in half. So, problem solved. Well, then I saw another wasp crawling on the windowsill underneath the the shelf, underneath the window. So, I reach up there and I pin that wasp with a knife, cut it in half. Easy, dead wasp. Then Jack says, Dad, I think one's crawling up my neck. And so, I shine the light over on him and sure enough, yeah, it crawled right up his neck and was going on top of his hat. I said, okay, hold still. I'm going to kill this wasp just like I killed these other wasps. So I get my knife out, and I press it down on that wasp on top of his head and cut down, kill the wasp. And then he says, is it off? And he runs his fingers underneath the blade of my knife. Okay, so if you are squeamish, I'm giving you a warning. I'm about to show a picture here. You can close your eyes. I don't want anybody throwing up in church. Okay, so here's the before picture. 
Yeah, so you can see it caught right across his top knuckle and uh, his other finger. And here's the after picture. It looks much better. Yeah, so that was after a quick trip to that brand new hospital on South Broadway, the ER that's open all night long. A $350 uh, deductible, and he had eight stitches, and he was good to go. So if you're thinking, how can one of our pastors be so dumb? I brought the pictures to prove it. Um, it really did happen, did not make the story up. This is dad of the year material right here. You saw it. Thank you very much. So aside from the fact that Jack has a fool for a dad, why did this happen? More specifically, if he knew the wasp was dead and there was a very sharp knife close to his head, why did he panic and reach up there? Here's why, and it's our link to our passage of today. He feared the wasp more than he feared the knife. His fear of the wasp, even though it was dead, was so great that he couldn't stand it any longer And he just had to get it off. It was the fear of the wasp that ruled all his other fears. So my question to you today is, what do you fear most? What is the fear that rules your other fears? What do you pray about most often or maybe even obsess over? Maybe it's your family, parents out there. You know we always are worried about our kids. Something that might happen to them, how they're going to turn out. If you're younger, maybe it's being afraid of the dark. If you have a job, maybe you're afraid of losing your job. You're worried about your money. If you don't have a job, you're probably worried that you don't have a job. You're afraid of the consequences. What if I don't get that raise? What if I don't get that promotion? Or just fear of the future. Some of us don't like change. We like things to be just like they are now, don't want anything to change. We're afraid of some coming change. Or maybe you're just afraid of being stung by wasps or cut by your dad. You know, we're continuing our series on wisdom today, and our passage today identifies one fear that rules all the other fears, the one fear that drives out all others. And that is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord rules, it controls, it even can drive out all other fear. So turn with me to Psalm 112. One right after the one we read as the call to worship. The one right after the the one that Clint preached last week. And while you're turning or clicking to the psalm, let me give you a preview of how we'll spend the next few minutes together. After I introduce this song, we'll talk about what that psalm meant to the original audience, what it meant then, and then we'll look at what this psalm says, what it means, or how it applies to us today. So kind of a then and now. So please follow along as I read this entire psalm. I'm making a big mess up here. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. 
It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So the author of this psalm is unknown, but where it falls in the Psalter, the book of Psalms, is it's the second of a group of three psalms, 111, 112, and 113, that all start the same way with the same phrase, praise the Lord. Or in Hebrew, it's hallelujah. As we sang, you didn't know you were singing Hebrew, but that means praise or bless the Lord. And we sang it many times this morning, providentially. So if you compare Psalm 112 to 111, you'll find several similarities. They're both acrostics which means in Hebrew, the first line of each colon of poetry is a, the sequential letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You'll see several words and themes that are repeated, delight, righteousness, established, grace and compassion, and fear. And in the last verse of Psalm 111, the author says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So most of Psalm 111 is about God and what God has done, and so Psalm 112 transitions, or Psalm 112 then really puts skin on Psalm 111. It is about what is the life like of the person whose foundation of their very life is the fear of the Lord. Before we dig in here, I want to explain just two warnings as we approach this psalm. The first is, this is what we call wisdom literature, which means that these are general principles they're not formulas or guarantees of a promise. By that I mean there are some people who believe in what is called the prosperity gospel, which is not a true gospel, but they believe that God desperately wants to bless you materially with health and wealth here and now, and that's based off of your obedience and your faith. And if something is going wrong in your life, it's because of a weakness in one of those two areas. And that's not what this passage means. In fact, there's a switching back and forth between the singular and the plural and the Hebrew that shows that what this really is meant is this is the typical or the common uh, approach to blessings for the collective people of God, not an individual promise or guarantee. So there's a long list of heroes of the faith in Scripture, people that the Bible says definitely feared the Lord, Yet they are not wealthy, they don't have big families, and there are times in their life where they showed fear. So that's one warning. The second warning is that this psalm was originally given to the people of Israel who were living under the Mosaic Covenant, which we are not, often referred to as the law, and God's way of dealing with them was to graciously bless them in these very ways, often materially, so that by their good fortune as a nation, people would see the power of their God. So, for example, 
Deuteronomy 7 says, beginning in verse 6, Moses says to the Israelites, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. So this was an act of grace, not because there was something special or worthy about the Israelites, other than God had made a promise to their forefather, Abraham. And then later in verse 12, Moses says, And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that He swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain, your wine, and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that He swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples, all nations. Later we'll talk about what the death and resurrection of Jesus does to change this, but we can be confident that the original hearers of this psalm would have rightly seen a much greater link between their obedience and the blessing than we would see as we read Psalm 112 today. But if you look back to the greatness of God in Psalm 11, the blessing described here is really not for the people being blessed. It's not uh, for them, it's for others. It's to point others to the greatness of the blessor, like we sang this morning. So with that in mind, let's look at the text in a little more detail. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. We see two things about this person, this man or woman. The first is that they, the first is they fear the Lord. And as Clint said last week, this is not the type of fear where you are afraid of something or scared of something. It's reverential awe. It's respect. The second thing we see about this person is that because of what they think about the Lord, they obey the Lord. Not just obey Him, but the text says they greatly delight. They are motivated to obedience by the worship of the Lord. And they are delighted in knowing when their obedience pleases the Lord. Then as we move into the rest of the psalm, we see the first of four fears that the fear of the Lord controls or rules. And the first is family fear. Verse 2 says, His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. So a couple of observations here. One, there will be offspring, and those offspring are mighty, which elsewhere is a military term, sometimes valiant. So we know these offspring are powerful, they are influential, and they are wise. And they are a blessing to the upright, to the faithful, to the congregation. So these family fears, will I have kids? What will happen to them? How will they turn out? All these fears for this man are ruled by the fear of the Lord. The second ruled fear is in verse 3, and that's financial fears. Verse 3 says, Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Today we read wealth and riches, and we think of like Bill Gates rich, the mega rich, 
someone much richer than anyone we know. But the way the Hebrew works here is the word for wealth modifies the riches. And when paired together, a better reading is actually sufficient riches. In fact, not only are their needs met, but then in verse 5, we see they have enough money to lend generously and justly, not taking advantage of his power over those who are less fortunate. And then in verse 9, we see they're able to even have enough to give to the poor generously without regard for a return on that investment. Their needs are met by God and they use their extra, their sufficient wealth to bless others. So that's the second fear ruled by the fear of the Lord, it's financial fears. So the first was family fears, the second was financial fears. The third fear ruled by the fear of the Lord is fear of the dark. Verse 4 says, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Notice that the upright are not the light themselves, and everything isn't going perfectly for the upright. They're surrounded by darkness, but light is graciously given to them. God provides for them, He guides them, and He gives them hope in the face of adversity. You know, fear of the dark, you kids might not believe this, but it's something you never really outgrow. Don't believe me? Okay, let's take a poll. Adults, when you're alone at night in your house, lights on, lights off. No one sits in the dark all by themselves. The first thing you do is go in and turn on the lights. It's a fear you never really give over. So that's the third, third fear, fear of the dark. Second was financial fear, and the first was family fear. The next fear, the fourth fear, is a fear of change. Look in verse 6. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. The righteous, those who fear the Lord, will never be moved or maybe read, never be shaken. In the face of challenge or adversity, she is steadfast. She does not falter or slip. And it's not just general, ambiguous change in the future. The text goes on to say it's bad change. Look at verse 7. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. It's not that bad things don't happen to this God-fearer that makes him unique. It's his response to those bad things. His heart is firm, which in Hebrew is in the passive, meaning it's something that comes from outside of him. It's something that is done to him. And it's not just that his heart, which represents his will and emotions here, it's not just that his heart is strong, it's that it remains secure in its trust in the Lord. Like Job, who got the news, the bad news, maybe even the worst news, that his kids had all been killed and his, his wealth was gone. And what does the text say he did? Job 1, verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground. You expect that he withered and died. But the text says, and he worshipped. Then in verse 22, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job grieved, his heart was broken, 
yet he was firm. He did not sin or charge God with wrong. Then finally, we see the second reason that this God-fearer is not afraid in verse 8. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph over his adversaries. The word steady here can also be translated as sustained or supported. And I think the NIV actually has a little better translation of the last part of the verse, which says, in the end, they will look in triumph on his adversaries. He's not afraid because he, the righteous person, the God-fearer, is trusting in the power of the Lord to prevail in the end. You know, it's kind of like watching a movie for the second time or the third time or the fourth time or at least a movie with a happy ending. When you know how it's going to end, it doesn't have the same suspense. You don't feel the ups and downs in quite the same way because you know how this story is going to end. And in the same way, the one who fears God knows that God's purposes are good and that He will prevail in the end. So that's the last fear, the fear of change. If we look back, we see the fear of the Lord rules the family fears, it rules financial fears, it rules fear of the dark, and rules fear of change. So wisdom literature contrasts the righteous man with the wicked man. So how does the wicked man, the one who does not fear the Lord, how does he fare? Let's look at verse 10. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So what does the wicked man see that makes him so angry? He sees the blessing and the honor given to the righteous man. He sees the family, the wealth, the peace and joy in the face of adversity. And the end of verse 9 says his horn, the righteous man's, is exalted in honor. And the horn is a symbol of power and strength, often used to describe a powerful king. So the wicked man is opposed to the righteous one. He is jealous of his success. And the text says he melts away, which really means he becomes weak and powerless. Then the psalm ends by proclaiming the desire of the wicked will perish. Which this word for desire is the same one used back in Genesis to describe Adam and Eve's desire in the garden. Or in the Ten Commandments, it's translated as covet. So this desire is what prompted them to overstep their bounds, to exploit others, the exact opposite of the God-fearer who is just in his business dealings and generous in the way he gives to the poor. He's merciful and gracious. So to summarize what it originally meant, what Psalm 112 originally meant, is those who fear and obey the Lord will be blessed abundantly. And their fear of the Lord will control or rule their fears for their family, their fears about money, their fear of the dark, and their fear of change. And it also promises that they will be opposed by the wicked. So if we're going to switch to, from what it meant then to what it means now, we'll explore what the psalm means and how it applies to us today I want to start with three warnings. The first is, don't spiritualize this psalm too quickly. By that I mean, don't assume that all of these blessings that come to the God-fearer are only spiritual, or that none are ever material, or realized until we die. 
We see this in the New Testament. For example, Jesus speaking in Matthew 6 and verse 33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And what are those things? If you were to go back a few verses earlier, you'd see there your basic physical needs. Food, clothing, and water. God promises He will provide those for you. Another mistake would be to make the same mistake that Job's friends made. To assume that if something is going wrong in someone else's life, or even your own, that they are wicked, that you're wicked, and that the difficulties must be a result of your or their sin. And this psalm points out, the righteous will receive bad news, they will have enemies, but their hearts stay firm and fixed on the Lord. There's lots of great examples within Bethel. Um, there's two that are on my heart right now, both on South Campus. We have two families who have small children, two-year-old daughters who have cancer right now. Both families are grieved, they're disappointed, and they are afraid. I've gotten to spend some time with the Skiles family. They're a little further along in this process. And I can tell you that their hearts are firm. Their fear of the Lord, their faith in His goodness and His power is greater than those other fears that they have. It rules and controls those other fears. Just like my son, whose fear of the wasp was greater than his fear of the knife. Greater fear controls or rules the lesser fear. Then the final caution. It's important for us to remember why God blesses us. It's not for our benefit. It is for others. Just as the blessing of the nation of Israel was done for the purpose of pointing the nations to the God of Israel, our gifts and blessing are for others to point them to our God. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Adam talked about our garden and tending our garden. That's stewarding what God has given us. And just as the moon reflects the light of the sun, it doesn't generate light on its own. We shouldn't work to generate our own light, but reflect the light that comes from the Lord his goodness and His provision and His blessing to us. And it shouldn't stop with us. It should be shared graciously, mercifully, and compassionately with those around us. And finally, all of this blessing comes to us today not through a general fear or respect or belief in God, but specifically through faith in the person and work of Jesus. It's His death on the cross and His resurrection that gives us, as Paul says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It makes us sons and daughters of God, heirs of the promise, and by God's grace and through the work of the Spirit in us, faith in Jesus makes our sanctification possible. Sanctification is that certain process, promise, that we will increasingly, progressively, sometimes slowly, sometimes erratically, but God promises that He will make us more and more 
like the righteous God fear in Psalm 112. And less and less like that wicked man in verse 10 who has no hope, no power, and the desires of his hearts perish. My hope is that we would all, through faith in Jesus, through fear of the Lord, live lives marked by peace and joy in the face of struggle and adversity. That others around us would take notice, not of how strong we are, but of how awesome our God is. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.